Well, our passage today is Psalm 68, verses 1 through 6. I want to encourage you to turn there. You realize that this past Monday was World Orphans Day. And uh, many of you probably haven't heard of that. It was in 2006 that a nonprofit organization sparked a national movement to recognize the plight of orphans around the world. And so here we are, 15 years later, and nations around the world are celebrating World Orphans Day. And that's the second Monday of November, if you wanted to know the exact day. It's intended to raise awareness about the needs of more than 150 million children who've been displaced from their families due to disaster or illness or death of parents, a host of other reasons. About every once in a while, I take a chance to, to speak on this topic of not only the, the love that we have for orphans, but also God's adoptive love for us. And that's going to be our emphasis today, God's adoptive love. So let's look at Psalm 68, verses 1 through 6. Let's stand as we read. Here's the word of the Lord. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee from him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to Him. Lift up a song to Him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before Him. Father of the fatherless, protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this Word. We thank You that we are blessed not only to have Your Word, but Lord, to to know that it is true in a landscape in which we live of constantly changing values and opinions and the desire for tolerance of multiple views, many of them contrasting with one another. Lord, we have this foundation of truth that is Your Word. And thank You for what it reveals about You. A father to the fatherless. A protector of widows. So many things that are great values of a righteous God. We thank you for these this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, in order to understand what Psalm 68 means when it talks about God's very practical love for the fatherless, and by extension, how we can care for the fatherless, we need to understand a bit more about a theological concept that is titled or known as adoption. And the Bible describes God as an adoptive father, and each of us as an adopted son or daughter who enjoys many rights and privileges of the relationship that God the Son enjoys with the Father. 
Because you are adopted by God, you have been made a co-heir with His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you appreciate what that means? God is yours. Christ is yours. A throne and a crown and an eternal weight of glory are yours. Now, I didn't have you read any specific passages this week other than Psalm 68, but I do want you to look at a few key passages with me in the New Testament that talk about God's adoption of believers. And the first one is Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, where we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. And that is one of the the most grand passages in all of Scripture. But Paul says that in love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Before God created the universe, he planned, he purposed to adopt his children. Adoption, therefore, was not an afterthought. It was in God's mind even before the dawning of human history. As John Piper has said, adoption is greater than the universe. But there's more, because if that isn't expansive enough, God purposed to adopt us before we were ever born. And verse 5 says that he did so out of love. Specifically out of love as a father. And so when we talk about purpose, what we talk about is forethought and choice. God, out of fatherly love, chose chose to make us His own and bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, perhaps that doesn't fully impress you because you've heard of the fatherhood of God your entire life. But think for a second about the one whom we are talking about. This is the Almighty God. And I like how J.I. Packer writes, vast stress is laid on the thought today that God is personal. But this truth is so stated as to leave, he says, the impression that God is a person of the same sort that we are. That he's weak. That he's inadequate, ineffective, even a little pathetic. But that is not the God of the Bible. Our personal life is a finite thing. It's limited in every direction, he says, in space, in time, in knowledge, in power, but God is not so limited. He is eternal, infinite, mighty. He has us in his hands. We never had him in ours. Like us, he is personal, but unlike us, he is great. In all its constant stress on the reality of God's personal concern for his people and on the gentleness, tenderness, sympathy, patience, yearning, compassion that he shows towards them, the Bible never lets us lose, Packer concludes, the sight of his majesty in unlimited dominion over his creatures. 
And I quoted that in his, from his book, Knowing God, because in reminding us that God is great, that he is the creator, what an amazing grace that this holy, sovereign God would love us. Sinful creatures who were in rebellion against him, and he chose to make us members of his family. Should that not move us to worship him even more? And so the first thing to know about your adoption into God's family through Christ is that God chose you, predestined you for adoption in love before the foundation of the world, and therefore your adoption is rooted in His eternal purpose and grace, and that means that your adoption is not fragile. It's not tenuous, it's not uncertain. God does not adopt you and then find out that you're unworthy and not quite what He expected, or difficult, and then remove you from the family. And that's particularly wonderful when we realize how great our need is for adoption. You see, especially given that the subject generating today's topic is this, this World Orphans Day, it might be tempting to say that our need for God's adoptive grace is because we are orphans. We want to make that, that tie, but that's really not the full picture. We're not as much orphans as we are slaves. Look at this passage from Galatians chapter 4, verses 2 through 7. Paul writes, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, but born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So Paul says, we're slaves. We were slaves to the elementary principles of the world. And that refers to the fact that we were slaves to the demonic philosophies and values perpetrated by Satan and those under his dominion. The world, whenever Paul uses the, t- the term world in that sense, is not neutral. Rather, it is the world that is under the sway of the devil, set in opposition to God and his kingdom. And so to say that we were slaves to those principles is to remind us We were slaves of the devil. We were slaves to sin. And so when God created man in his own image and then Adam fell, as a result, the sonship that Adam enjoyed was lost. God's image bearers were no longer called sons of God, but instead were considered sons of disobedience. That's what you read in Ephesians uh, two one or children of wrath, as Ephesians two three says. So fallen men and women become more than just orphans; they become enemies of God. They become haters of God, even as First John three ten says, "Children of the devil." 
And so our need for adoption is so much greater than just saying that we were orphans. We needed to be redeemed and set free from slavery in order to be adopted. And that's what Galatians 4 says. Another interesting passage about God's adoptive grace is found in Romans chapter 9, verse 4, where we read, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And you'll notice what's listed first in those great blessings is adoption. So what did God do when Adam fell? When the earth was populated entirely with sons of disobedience, children of wrath, children of the devil, with people who wanted to make a name for themselves, who wanted to cast off God, God graciously raised up one among them, a man named Abraham, and promises to make Abraham's name great. And so in his grace, he chooses a man who, like everyone else, serves other gods and chooses him to be the one through whom the Lord will make a nation set apart to himself. And that nation is described as God's son. But throughout its history, Israel, like Adam, fails in its sonship. And in the end, essentially replays the same story of Adam's failure. Why would God decide to adopt children for himself from among such a wicked, rebellious people? As Jonathan Edwards has written, a fountain is not deficient if it overflows. It is, in fact, inclined to overflow. Think about that for a second. A fountain is not deficient if it overflows. It is, in fact, inclined to overflow. That's what a fountain does, right? God is like a fountain. And the adoption of man is the kind, gracious, intentional, natural overflow of God's joy and love in order to be a father to many and to make his glory known. But what an unexpected thing to desire to be a father to fallen man. Most of you have seen or read The Lord of the Rings, and when we first see Gollum in the film, he's a strange creature. You're not really sure what he is, but you find out a bit later that he was once one of the river folk. He was once uh, a hobbit named Smeagol. And he found the one ring and became enslaved to its power. And as a slave, he undergoes a hideous transformation so that his image becomes so marred that it's almost lost altogether. And at one point, and I can't say it like Andy Serkis says, so I'm not even going to try, but he says, we forgot the taste of bread. We even forgot our own name." And that's so much like what happened to us in Adam when we became enslaved to sin. We forgot the taste of God's goodness. We even forgot the case that we were made in his image. 
But know this, as we saw in Galatians 4, God adopted you while you were at war with Him. That means that His decision to adopt you was not based upon you being cute. It wasn't based upon your worthiness. God died for you while you were weak, while you were in fact an enemy. And many people, unfortunately, view God's adoption of us like the musical Annie. We think either from Daddy Warbuck's point of view that we must be this cute, adorable redhead that God loves to dote upon. Or we think from Annie's point of view that God is a harsh God whose favor we have to earn through good behavior while we get rid of our competitors. But that's not the way that God adopts his children. What we learn from Ephesians is that he chooses his children before the foundation of the world and decides beforehand to lift us up out of our hopeless estate and place us in his family. In fact, it's so important to him that it's how he chooses to heap praise upon himself. He's passionate about it. So passionate about it that he sends his son to be rejected so that we might be brought into his family. Puritan Thomas Watson once said, we have enough in us to move God to correct us. There's no question about that. But we have nothing in us to move him to adopt us. Therefore, Watson says, exalt the grace of God and begin the work of the angels here. Bless him with your praises who has blessed you in making you his sons and daughters. So yes, Watson's right. God the Son, Jesus, sent by the Father in order that the sonship that was lost by Adam failed in by Israel might be restored and exponentially improved upon through the gift of adoption in Christ. And yet, the greatness doesn't stop there. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 4.6, because you are sons by adoption, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. The first person who ever called me daddy was my son Kevin. And I can still remember what it felt as a new father to hear that word come from his young lips. And he is now almost 29 years old, hard to believe, and still calls me dad. And that continues to fill me joy. And of course, he's not the only one who calls me dad or father. My heart is filled with the same joy every time I hear dad, no matter which one of my six children saying. And you may know that Abba is the Aramaic equivalent to our word daddy. But I think that when we talk about it that way, we over-sentimentalize it. And we miss the reason for why Paul uses it here in this passage. The significance of the word Abba is not the thought that those who are adopted by God now have the privilege to call him daddy. That's not what is meant by Paul because 
In the original Greek, he writes this, you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, ho pater. Now, Abba is not a natural word in the Greek. It's Aramaic. And here's the point. Paul says, ho pater, Greek for father, and Abba, Aramaic for father, in the same sentence, in two different languages, the first language, Aramaic, is the language of the Jews. The second language, Greek, is the language of the Gentiles. Now, I believe the reason that Paul puts both words together, he's not just saying, Daddy, Daddy, for repetition, is that God the Father is not a respecter of ethnic origin when it comes to membership within his family. And here's, here's Paul writing to Jew and Gentile alike and saying, what the amazing great grace of God that we should, Jew and Gentile alike, be able to call God our Father. You see, the Gentiles have been grafted into this natural tree that was the nation Israel. And the picture of that grafting in is a great illustration even for what happens when families adopt children that are not their own biologically. In our family, Heather and Hope and Caleb, they've all been grafted into the Walker tree. And they've become vital members of our family as if they had grown from the tree from the beginning. And we might say that the biological children, like the Israelites, have the right and privilege to call me Abba, but my adopted children, like the Gentiles, have received the right and privilege to call me Father. But the point is, it's extended without discrimination, without partiality to both. And I've said this morning that God determined to adopt you before He ever created the world, and that means that it was for his purposes and not for any other reason. Then I said that you were adopted in a state of rebellion against God. Therefore, you were not adopted because you were cute or, or worthy, but because God chose to lavish his grace upon you. And now I'm saying this, God has adopted both Jew and Gentile, showing no partiality to race or ethnicity or nation. And when we put all of this together, do you see why on an earthly level, the care of orphans, and especially even the practice of adoption, is so meaningful. Adopted orphans need to hear how their parents determined to show them love without partiality, without respect to health or attractiveness or worthiness, but simply because they desired to lavish their love upon them. And that's exactly what God did for us on a far greater and grander scale. That is why Psalm 68 speaks of God being a father to the fatherless and setting the solitary into families. We've seen God's heart on the cosmic and spiritual scale and so it is natural for us to see this attitude expressed on a very practical, earthly scale. It's also why Active care for orphans is not an option for the church, but rather 
is a strong admonishment by the Scriptures. In Isaiah 1.17, it says, Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. And then in James 1.27, it says that the religion that God our Father accepts, which is pure and faultless, is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress. You even have the intense scene in Matthew 25 where it's the judgment and, and Jesus separates the sheep from the goats based upon the fruit of the Spirit in their lives as evidenced by their treatment of the least of the people. And right now, there are more than 150 million children who fit into the description of the least of these and they're just trying to figure out what the rest of their life looks like. Some thinking about how they'll survive another day. They hope that some of us will practice pure and faultless religion. That someone will actually step into their lives and show them the Father's love of adoption. Not just talk about it, but actually embody it through action. And friends, God adopted us for the praise of His grace out of his purpose, without respect to need or worthiness or ethnicity, he adopted us for his glory. And that's the same reason that we as Christian families should adopt orphans, or if we're not able to adopt, because not all of you perhaps have the ability or means or uh, life station, whatever, to adopt, to at least support ministries that facilitate that process to support other families that adopt, to pray, all so that God may be glorified. And so the questions that you ask as you think through all of this, the questions that you ask as you ponder, what does it mean for me to show the love of the Father to the fatherless are not first questions of feasibility or age or affordability or practicality. The questions that you ask are, is my heart fixed on glorifying the grace of God? Is my aim in this to make the grace of God more glorious? Is Christ the center and goal of this thought process? Are all the factors being weighed in relation to Christ? And if they are, then what is God calling me to do? How is He calling me to show love to the fatherless? When Christian families adopt orphans, setting the solitary into families, the goal is that same thing that God has for us. When God adopted us, as we've seen, He intended that we should worship and love Him because He first loved us. Well, when Christian families set the solitary into families and adopt orphans, the goal is the same, to teach and train their child in such a way that he or she comes to worship and love God. Now, this is, a, this is really maybe subtle for some to think about. Because oftentimes when we think about the option of adopting, 
We think of taking a child out of a bad situation, taking their low view of self and their, their struggle in their life station and replace them with a high view of self. But that's not what adoption is about. It's to take a child's low view of God and replace them with a high view of God. I'll say that another way. Our aim in loving orphans, which should reflect God's adoptive love for us, is not to take a child with a low sense of worth, self-worth, and fill him with a great sense of self-worth. Rather, the primary goal is to take a child who by nature already, just like every other sinful creature in this world, has him or herself as the center of the world. and who would have continued to their eternal detriment to make themselves the center of all things, and to show him or her that they were made to put God at the center of the universe, made to receive joy, not by seeing their own worth, but by knowing Christ who is of infinite worth, We adopt because we desire to share with a child through our love a truth that God shared with us when he adopted us. And that's so important. When Christians follow after God who places the fatherless and the families, they model mercy. And since I'm talking about this As you know, many adoptions happen sight unseen. The child passes no tests. The medical records are slight. They're often wrong. There may be issues with regard to behavior or things of the past. You name it. You've heard from families who have difficult stories to tell. And despite this, an adopted child is loved freely without meeting conditions. Because the choice is not made on what we see. We love because we have been loved by God. And when a child comes into a family chosen freely by mercy, we now fold that child into a pattern of of love, of biblical training and discipline, and to the righteousness and justice of God. We raise them in the instruction of the Lord and we know from Hebrews 12 that this produces a peaceful fruit or peaceable fruit of righteousness. Does adoption bring heartache sometimes or stress or suffering? Of course it does, but so does raising biological children. But think about God's adoption of you. You were adopted through the suffering of Christ. And think also of the great end product, joy. For the joy that was set before him in leading many others to glory, Hebrews says Christ endured the cross, and that is the same reason that families adopt orphans, so that they may, as a result of whatever sacrifice that must take place, See the joy of bringing a child to the Lord. 
Corey shared with many of you a few months ago that didn't know the story about the issue of Hope's heart condition and the expectation of cardiologists that we consulted and how we had to come to a point where we were adopting her not because she would be free of difficulty and not because she would get married and have children and grand, we would have grandchildren. We were adopting her so that she would know Christ forever. What greater gift or joy could there be? It is, is that not worth sacrifice and suffering? That a child who would his or her entire life only know the four walls of an institution and later be released into a pagan culture would instead know the love of God. So friends, if you are or have at all thought about what it means to love the fatherless, I know the agonizing thought process especially when it comes to the option of of adopting someone. I know the desire just to invest 20 or so years into raising children and then enjoy grandchildren. I know the fears of hearing about difficult stories or process or cost or any number of things. But where I finally began to adjust my thinking is that when I thought about our three biological children whom we had at the time, I thought, what if they were taken away and alone? I wouldn't just sit there and be convicted by their plight. Right? I would go after them. It'd be like the movies that show the the people where their wife or their child is taken or lost, and, and that becomes their consuming Focus to go get them restored. Well, when I look at the Bible, that's exactly what God wants us to do. And our passage says that he made himself a father to those who did not have a father. That means that I need to make myself a father to those who do not have a father. And then I'm not just to be moved by a situation. But if I really treat myself as a father, then I go after them. And whatever it is that God has called me to do in whatever capacity in showing love to the fatherless, I do it with focus and passion. So when you hear about over 150 million orphans in the world and the million that are in foster care and the several hundred thousand in America alone that are waiting for families, it's easy to be overwhelmed by those statistics. But the good thing is, God hasn't called you to figure it all out. He has called you to do something, and there are many ways that you can touch the lives of orphans. So be prayerful about that. Think about how God would have you demonstrate his love intentionally to the fatherless. Let's pray. Father, thank you for adopting us in love into your family. And then thank you for challenging us to have the same kind of fatherly love that you possess. 
Lord, may we in our comfort, I will, I'll say comfort, but it's not always that. It, sometimes it's just the sense of overwhelming and knowing that we have enough that we're struggling with with our own existing families and our jobs and on our surrounding circumstances. Lord, may we stop for a moment and think about what this means for you to call us to love orphans. And then I pray that you would show us what we should do as a church, as families, individuals, or what have you called us to do in this time, in this moment? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.